This is Andrew Lou Goldham. I am your host today and every day on Sounds and Vision. Today we have part one with a friend and winner. I'm so glad he came into my life, Mr. Johnny Marr. Of course, the guitarist and writer from The Smiths, the executive collaborator with the, the electronic Modest Mouse, The Crips, shortly on tour with Blondie, and shortly after that with The Killers, a man who goes to work. And his work recently with Hans Zimmer and all of the Jimmy Bond people. You know, if you don't work it, you lurk it into the shadows, and that is not Johnny. We caught up with Johnny pre-COVID at the Victoria Theatre on Granville in Vancouver while he was on tour supporting his last great piece of music called The Comet. So a lot of this convo is pre-COVID, but we're going to be revisiting our pre-COVID people for post... What well, post? Let's not get too confident. We're not on CNN. Post-COVID chats. Two-part episode. This week, we will be looking into my mammoth's drive across the Americas and the hallucinations thereof. Fashion girl groups. Johnny's book, A Great Tome. It's not about drivel. It's about drive. Johnny Mars' book, Set the Boy Free. Now, in terms of just before we hit the button on this show, corrections. We have a little corrections uh, department. My good friend Stephen Van Zandt has a book out. Wonderful tome of his dedication to his life, his life with Bruce, his political work, his days, dare we say it, on the curb in Bitterbury during the time he was not with the E Street Band. I'm so pleased to be included in his book, Hard to Find Stephen Without an Index, but I must correct a statement of yours, if I may, where you say that I stole the Rolling Stones from George Ugomelsky. George Ugomelsky, dear boy, never had the Rolling Stones. They played him, okay? And during that period where they played him, particularly Brian, who was the leader of the group at that time, they're playing him for what they wanted, which was to continue with their Sunday night season at the Station Hotel in Richmond. In came me, like Flint, and on one occasion, Brian, I could have come on, he must have gone to entrepreneurial school, he introduced me to George Bromowski when Giorgio came back from burying his father in Switzerland as his brother. What kind of cojones are those, Stephen? Anyway, there we are. Speaking of cojones, Mr. Johnny Marr. Two artists who I've known in my life or witnessed recording, Frank Sinatra and an Argentinian god called Charlie Garcia, who is so brilliant and dangerous that I had to work with him in the 90s, right? I couldn't resist it. I mean, he's he, so talented, but totally dangerous. I mean, in terms of... He would wreck the hotel rooms. They'd ask for two and a half grand. He would give them five. And they'd say, no, no, Mr. Garcia, it's, that's, uh, it's only two and a half. He said, yeah, the rest is for tonight. <laughs> right? And he was such a genius in school that 
he was running the choirs when he was 11 or 12 or 13. So when I did work with him, he did manage to sabotage the work, but be that as it may. Right. right. He knew what he was doing. He relied on whomever was doing the engineering work, the whatever. Like, if you're not as good as I am, what are you doing here? Got you, yeah. I expect, you know, it, it to be like this. And he, was, and he was like that as a kid as well when yeah. he started out, yeah. when he was demoing you. That's an interesting thing. Right? So it wasn't, people, how did I sound? Got it. Bob Marley was the same. Okay. And, you know, at the risk of, you know, being completely immodest, so was I when I got into... Good. Got That's into, what I'm looking for. Yeah. Right, yeah, I mean... Yeah, because the thing is about, and there's a number of artists like that, the stories of Bob Marley in really early days, I might be getting slightly wrong, I don't think I'm 17, 18, in those really early sessions, and um, he was a pain in the ass because he was saying, no, 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 the backing vocals are too quiet. Backing vocals are too quiet because in his mind, he's listened to the impressions and he's listened to the drifters, right. and he's, he's going, no, 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 those harmonies aren't right. Make them louder. In other words, he's an expert by the time he gets in there. Yep. And it just sort of follows, if you're obsessive, which, which yes. I, was, I was also, and I guess this is, to me, is, it's a little bit of a great kind of testament to our obsession, move, sort of slightly moving along, because a lot of the people who I click with and who I, I identified with, and I have to say, you know, you, most anyone who's, knows my story, knows that you were a big part of that. And you also, you, you know another obsessive... You do. When, ...when you see one, right? Yeah. And, you know, that, I didn't realise it at the time until I got much older, but that was something right. that I sort of... Uh, see, that's why I recognised in you, you know, and, and, and I had... Yeah, so I'd studied and studied and studied, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. Right. I just did it. Records, like, like, arrangements in my case, really. I now know it was arrangements. Right. Like, so things, things like... Um, on that second verse, the Hammond is doubling. This gets very technical. Right. No, no, the Hammond yeah, is doubling yeah. the guitar. Oh, on that last chorus, acoustics come in. Oh, the, the fade-out is really, really long. Or, ah, oh, that little thing there is doubled by that. Those things all that... All of that, all of that. I, I you live for it. Absolutely. Yeah, and if totally. it wasn't as I thought it should be, it would annoy me. Yeah. So, right, right. The, so I was learning to play. One of the reasons why I play the way I play is, yeah, I was... I was I, I, I was obsessed with the guitar, like in the way a lot of people are obsessed with the guitar. But as to what it would do, I sort of learned to play. Like if I was listening to Mott the Hoople and it started, you know, the organ on all the young dudes on the intro, right. that's the bit I was interested in. The guitar solo on the top, I'd, I'd have that down in 10 minutes. But it was the way the backing vocals and the, and the organs work together. So I try and find the voice and... I didn't know that's what I was doing, but right. that was, I wanted to sound like the whole record, yeah. which is what I've said many times. So it was about arrangements, really, and how all these things fitted together, and I just wanted to do it with guitars. I wanted, so the other thing was Flo and Eddie on those Mark Bolan records that Tony Visconti did, the two yeah. back in the Their vocal sound, these really weird catcall things that they yep. were known for, I, then, I would try and, on some Smith's records, I, tried, I would do that, because it sounded like cats wailing to me, yeah. I would then go, well, okay, well, we don't have BVs in this band and it's an opportunity for me to do that on the guitar. So I would do it with a slide and, and a wah-wah to try and make How it. How many tracks <laughs> most of the time in, in that period were you on? Well, we were making 24-track we records, yeah, but 
famously, when I was working with John Porter, the Smiths Records, we, there would be 15, 16 tracks of guitars and it only sounded like 10. Okay. You know, that was the thing. To, that skill of mosaic of guitars and the stuff that, ironically, the stuff that I produced for the band, our own more DIY records, which are, are, in some ways have become more enduring, probably because there's less on them. I actually put less on. I, I let it breathe a little more. There was less space. Right. Maybe I thought... Maybe I thought I was being too, I don't know, maybe I was, I was being a bit more modest, but also you're smoking hash and you like the space. Oh, that helps. You I like mean, it helps for the time because, yeah. you, you know, your body's going to run out of energy after, after a while. And the great thing about hash at that time was it gave you more time to start with, but it didn't, it did not, unlike pot, it didn't, pot would interfere with the, the, the concept, but... Hash was physical. Interesting. Right. Right. You know, you could, your body, let's say, you, you, know, you know, you're listening to it and, and you're allowing, you've got to be able to hear the accidents that work. I'd agree with that. You're, you're able to just sit with it and, yeah. and be with it. Yeah. You know. Until the police came in. Right. But yeah. As they, as they did. Whereas weed, you're just always, you know, really, really up there, but yeah. hash makes, you know. You, well, in that GQ magazine i was quite surprised by what they t- took as the banner or the, one of the subtitles that if um you thought drink and drugs would make everything better you'd be doing them yeah that's right the reason i say that is because there's the assumption that my lifestyle without particularly alcohol is about abstinence and therefore you know a reductive people are really so in other words see me as a rock and roll musician often journalists will sit down and they will t- unless i explain it that what i'm doing is a choice of actually being more progressive as i see it right. or being more radical right there's the assumption that maybe oh, i wish you, i wish i could have a drink i really wish i could down a bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne but i can't because i've got some drink and drugs hell no fuck no i, I do it as a choice because it's not abstinence. Okay. It's not like I'm taking this away from me because I, I got fucked up in the 80s. Nothing like that. No, it's the, re- it's, well, it's yeah, the reverse, which I assume... Then you have a blessing. I mean, yeah. I mean, but you are living in a world where, on a stadium scale, even the smiles are rehearsed. True. No, that is true, yeah. You know, Absolutely. Which makes a big difference to what anybody can or cannot do. You know, I mean, but in my case, you know, you know my case is different, you know. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, when I, but when I, mine would have been as well. Mine would have been different. I think at a certain point, yeah. you know, if I got, well, yeah, it sure. catches up even with more, you know, for folks who don't. But when I was uh, 17, it was a very good year. But the photographer, Terence Donovan, and I was working for Mary Quant or something like that, right? And he said to me, um, Andy, because they could then, <laughs> like yeah. Bill Wyman still does, okay? Right. Him and Italian waiters, right? You know, <laughs> He said, Andy, he says, you're an alcoholic, right? Which he was. Right. <clears throat> sure. Um, and I said, but Terry, I, I don't even drink. He said, yeah, but you have the isms. Wow, right. That was very... Uh, but you're talking about the isms too. I mean, it's being, you know, I mean, the passion of fanaticism. Fanaticism. I, I worked out that obsession and fanaticism is actually pretty useful when you get to a certain point in your life. It is. Really I remember you once saying, you know, hey, whatever it takes for me to put my, my foot down on the pedal. Yeah. You know, and I felt exactly the same way when we, when we hung out one time and right. I was asking you about it. And, um, 
I remember a couple, you know, talking to a couple of mu- musicians who asked me, oh, man, you know, you don't, you don't drink. And I was like, no, no, no. And you're not into, certainly not into cocaine and stuff. Oh, yeah, I've the, the joint now and again, you know, but kind of waste my time usually. But I actually think that I made a choice that this energy was my friend, you know, and, and actually the life of a sort of 40, 50-something-year-old rock musician sort of slowed down and drunk and I, I always say you know hanging around your friend's dressing room or, or at the minibar in the hotel right. Right. it's kind of pretty lame really and you need all the energy you can get and um and i turn that ism into a everything has to be a thing with me really everything what has to be like a thing yeah you know totally and uh and, but eventually you you get you know now that i'm nearly the same age as mick <laughs> you go god Everything, so many things that we did between the age of 50 and 70, once you get to 70, is a waste of time. In that, you... All right, I'm not... I'm not so a not, new thing at 70, you say, right? So uh, you start a new thing at 70. Yeah, well, totally, it's a new playing totally, field, is that what you say? Yeah. Two days, you get two days for everyone. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, that's great. It's wow. pretty good. I don't think anyone's said that before, but I know of. Very good. Okay. Yeah, I needed that. That's I, I, I needed that when when I came to make this new record, and uh, so a whole load of things that happened in the making of the record. But what was interesting is that um, I made it entirely because I needed to to make tracks in the way that I needed to make tracks when I was fifteen, sixteen. And why why I say make tracks mm. as opposed to write songs was that um, um, you know and I wanted to write songs, but it. It felt the same as when I was 15, 16, when I would retreat back to my parents because I would period, periodically leave my family's home. You know, I would leave home pretty young. And then there was times when I would come back right. and experiment. Um, I'd go through these periods of experimentation and it was putting guitars on the guitars on the guitars. The, the, the gestation of the direction of the Smiths was me... Well, see, I've got to ask you, because yeah. what does gestation mean? Gestation, yeah, it's like the growing process of like to, like like a bit like a chemical reaction. I mean, I'm sure there's a better description of it, but it's like a biological uh, process of okay. growth. Right. I think so. You know, just and you're writing tracks of a plant, so stuff in the soil. But yeah, I was right because what I was what I was looking for was this period that when I was writing the book. I've always, you know, in interviews, I just explained it, but when I came to writing the process, I was like writing about the process like oh yeah now at my age i can see it was quite quite a peculiar thing what why one of the reasons why the band sounded the way it did when we first got together when it was just me and morrissey uh one of the reasons why i went to find him was because i hit on this idea of the core changes of the girl groups and this is entirely you can go back and listen to the early smith and go oh yeah yeah exactly it was the it was the, the core changes and arrangements of the girl groups but done with I guess not punk rock, but because it's a little more more refined than that. But the guitar, the guitars of the of the nineteen eighties, post punk, my generate yeah. my generation thing. So I deliberately. What you're doing, you're doing with your instrument, 
what before it would take a lot of instruments to do. That is right, yeah, because that's a certain kind of facility. That, that, that yeah. can wonderfully fool you. You know, you're wiping out the, the influence. No, you're not wiping out the influence, but you're able to take full credit for it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It, re- it completely re- it puts it in a different context yeah. entirely when you hear Shangri-La's chord changes played through a Fender Twin Reverb. No, no, no that's yeah. wonderful. It's, uh, and that's what I thought. Well, I was saying that, I'm going to tell you because otherwise I will forget and I know you want to know. Because ho- we, we touched on this. The whole of the, and I only found this out recently, t- of Tapestry, right, of Lou Adler's yeah. Tapestry, and the way that he cut tracks. Is, and we had a, not knowing, in 1953 and 1954, one of the records I totally fell in love with was George Shearing and Peggy Lee. And it's got that the same way as you were talking about, oh, wait a minute, there's two pianos here. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And he yes. learnt and copped from that. Right. You know, yeah. because it's a combination of the room sound and then bringing another room sound in it. Yeah, but uh, using up a possibly let's say instead of one and a half drummers, one and a half pianos. Fantastic, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it's those things are unusual. Yeah. Because they're breaking the rules. You know, you really well, put especially back then. Put what do you mean two pianos, two basses, and right. but it, you you almost you need to almost be unencumbered by taste and critical factors. Hold on, when something's wrong and it's right, exactly that stays with you forever. I mean, I remember a moment in Regent Sound where Keith's acoustic, and this is the sound, man, on Tell Me, is coming through the drums. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the Velvet Underground's records were full of those. And also, I saw recently, funnily enough, closer to home, someone else saying the same thing, which is our friend Mick Rock. Ah. Uh, exactly saying the same yeah. thing about his photographs. Yeah. That like he was, you know, he was... Look, luckily, on, you know, he was, uh, um, well, how does he put it? Well, he basically says, you know, he, he had the advantage of not being sort of cri- technically right. restrained. He just didn't give a fuck. He just went for it. And, uh, but I, you know, I was doing that with, with just put under this little cassette machine that you could record over. And in my mind, just simply in 1980, those Shadow Morton records and right. Redbird records, yeah. which is why I went after Seymour, were weirder yeah. than, than what was in the charts which was bands like Madness. Mm. Uh, all my, my mates were right. r- jumping around with, bless them, you know, fair enough. Right. With Port Pie Hats. I mean, the specials were something else. They were fantastic, Jerry Dammers. But there was the Scar movement and there was the, the, the fag end of, new, you know, of, of new romantics and, and uh, new wave music. And I just, when I, when I discovered the... Group, no, no, back to the yeah, cookies and stuff yeah, and things like that. Yeah, what accidentally feeling uh, that you're so right, but you're actually getting it wrong. Yeah. Te- yeah, technically getting it wrong. I mean, this this first Smiths single, Hand in Glove, it was basically we went, we blagged the studio time, Joe paid for it, and we all went in there, and I just sensed that the rest of the, I talk about this in my book, yeah. I sensed that the rest of the band are looking at me like, well, sorry, Johnny's going to take care of it, and I'm thinking, I'm, eight, I'm 18, you know, like, where's the adult, you know? So I do say in the book, um, I don't mind saying this, but I just was like, okay, well, I'll just, pretend to be Andrew, you know. Like, oh, yeah, great. And uh, okay, because like, okay, and... I've I, been I, 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 I think it's up there in the air somewhere. Yeah, it is. It's, it's up there in the air, and as long as they don't know that I'm... That I, totally. That I don't know what totally. I'm doing, 
we're all okay. No, we aren't. I'll find it. I'll find it. But in other words, I wasn't sitting there going, right, great, now's my chance. No. I was not sitting there doing that. So I was getting some stuff wrong, and it's a very interesting sounding record because of it. But, but So when did the songs come? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with armour to help those, armour on yourself to help those you're working with. It protects them as well as you. It's for the greater good, Andrew. Exactly. We just give and give. Don't we? As obsessives. Yes, we do. Uh, walking the wire. But so, no, I mean, I, Did I, you write- I was trusted. I do, but I, I also say in the book, and I do feel this way, that I, I really, uh, the trust that the other guys had in me yeah. as a youngster was really, it was a beautiful thing. You know, they just, I can they just trusted me, you know. They, and it was very, um, it was supportive. Uh, you know, there are things, because of the nature of this, just while I'm on the subject, because of the nature of the whole drama of the Smiths and everything, that- in my book, little little shades of things are in the telling of the story, and this is one of them. Yeah, loads of stuff that has never come out, like like the way I felt like the guys trusted me, and I and that you could look at that like someone else with a beef might look at it like, oh yeah, all the all the pressure was on my shoulders, and I was, do, I, was left, <laughs> I was yeah, I yeah. was left carrying the can and all of that. I don't see it that way. No. I see it that the other three guys, when Johnny's capable. Right. Um, you know, we're in good hands. But when you're that age, you I don't, don't actually, look. until there's trouble, you don't have to analyse anything. No, that's, that's right. Well, you have to analyse it when you're writing a biography, the autobiography. This is true. Yeah, this is, but I mean, at the time, okay, true. I never heard Mick's opinion until The Stones 25 by 5. And he had a The documentary. Huh? The documentary, yeah. yeah. I mean, he had a problem, with, and I don't blame him, because there were a lot of other, you know. When two people are having a problem, there's always a third party. So really? Really? we always had a third party, and in our case, it was Alan Klein. Right. Famous. A yeah. wizard of whatever you want to call it, okay? But a wizard. So a, a wizard who other wizards in the world have come up to me and said... How did he do it? You mean, how did he go those extra, how did he go the extra mile? You're envious of that extra mile yeah. that he went where it's not something I would like to be envious of, you know, but uh, he was a wizard, you know, at that. But he was the third party in so much of my interreaction from 1965 with the Rolling Stones. Had I not brought him into the picture and said to Mick and Keith, what do you think? Because if you say yes, we're in. I could have been out because I was not skilled enough to know how to handle the problems we had with the first manager or Decker. Yeah. You know, and we're oh, all... So, did, so Klein helped you with those, with that, did he? He helped himself with those. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was always his money. You know, we didn't realize it's his money. <laughs> sure. As early as 65? Oh, yeah. That wow. kind of wizard. Right. Wow. You know. But so when you come to 25 by 5, the, the documentary of the Stones, which is the first time I'd seen... Uh, which is no longer available, except on VHS, right? I can imitate it. Right, you know. He has trouble with two words, Andrew Oldham. And, but interesting, he says, okay... <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Right? I know what He says, he, Andrew... Oh, <laughs> he was younger than us. And the shoulders are going and, you know... Well, that's true. Gray are kicking up a fuss. Huh? Gray are kicking yes. up a fuss. Right. Is what he says, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, you know. 
But when we were talking about the recording thing, Keith came with me to see Frank Sinatra record. Mick it, wouldn't yeah. or didn't. Yeah. Right? You mentioned that to yeah. Me, yeah. And Frank Sinatra was great. What a trip. What a trip, man. You know, on Sunset in Weston, and he comes in, and we, we're now in four track, so he now doesn't have to do the vocals live with the orchestra. And the orchestra is around Strangers in the Nighttime. And he comes in, goes straight into the studio, sits on the stool, does two or three takes on three songs. Then he comes into the control room where Keith and I are sat. Just, just you know, we're not gobsmacked yet. We're a little, and there's enough going on. You know, I really want to know about Kim Novak in The Man with the Golden Arm, but, you know. And he comes in, and there's Joe Smith there from... from sure, yeah. And uh, I love, never, you can't forget the introduction, Frank. This is uh, Mr. Keith Richards. Just that. You know, and this is his man. Oh, yeah. And so with the Rolodex of time, Frank Sinatra thinks England. Like, and he goes, oh, you, you know, uh, oh, you, must, you must know Harold Davis. Because Harold Davidson was the person who used to bring Count Basie and Frank Sinatra and Buddy Greco to England. Yeah. Say hello to Harold for me. You know, like, and then he doesn't listen to anything back. He puts his hands on the shoulders of the engineer sitting there and he says, you know which ones to use. Right. Nice. He's, hey, man, he's got other things on his mind, though. Yes, he has. He does. He doesn't want to know about reverb. <laughs> he right. really doesn't, right. you know. Right. Th those people, right. pe people like that. I'd say, you know, that's, that's interesting. The Rolodex of time. Yeah, when when I'm, um, I've met Quincy Jones a few times, and whenever he asks me where I'm from, and I say Manchester, he always, he always. He's got a point of reference. He, he's got a point. He talks to me about New Order, who were on Quest on his label in the eighties. Yeah. So he's got a point of reference. So um, I ran into Michael Caine on the street, right, <laughs> twice in New York, right. Yeah. And I don't think he's going to know, I tell him who this is, stopping him. Uh, hello, Michael, because we can all be Michael Caine in New York, right? Uh, hello, Michael. Oh, is in New York? Yeah. Right. This is Andrew Oldham, how are you? Without missing a beat, he said, oh, Andrew, how are the lads? Yeah. And this is 1986. Yeah. We're dealing with the Columbia where in the last 12, 15 years, you know, middle-class people with backpacks come in and think it's safe. It's still Colombia, Right, right. You know, now we've got our own bloodless Syria where just for economics they're coming over the border for sure. Venezuela. Right. And British journalists get paid nicely to go out and be put up in hotels and go back and write favourably about it. Of course, right. It's all, it's all business. Yeah. yeah. Right. So how, how is it your experience at the moment? Well, you, you've been there a long time, haven't you? How long have you been there? 15 years now or something? Oh, man, since I first went there in 75. Oh, wow, right. Then when Max was born, and for reasons I couldn't handle New York, and yeah. get him to the kindergarten on time, we oh, then moved back to, in 83, moved to Colombia. That long? Yeah. How are you feeling about it now, then? How are you personally feeling about your... I, it's, it's, it's the, I was given a country and a wife 
I was given silence is golden. Like, I don't really speak Spanish. Yeah. In fact, it's getting worse. <laughs> but you always seem to like it. I think that's my, I do. That's my point. You, whenever I hear from you. I do. And, yeah. I mean, and my drive across America made me embrace it more. Not because I, I fell in love with America, totally. I mean... This, um, this time this time, drive. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I was in a Mini, right? <laughs> in my own Mini, right? That's what I'm driving. Which one? The, the Mini Cooper, the new one? I've got the Countryman. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of, yeah, yeah you, I right. guess you need one, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, you need one. But I, I, it was just great. And Fargo. And then I went to... Um, I was just up there, yeah. Detroit. Oh, yeah. I haven't been there for a while. I'm not going there on this road. No, don't. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's interesting. But when they go, oh, I mean, I remember four years ago, these pictures from Detroit of where every people had abandoned their houses and their dogs. And there were 60,000 dogs defending the houses. Shit. I, even as a, a young guy, even as a youngster, when I went there with the Smiths in, I guess, the first time I was 85, I, I kind of worried for the place. I had enough about me. I was always really, really kind of interested in buildings and architecture and all yes, that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Amazing, but I, would, I, I went into, over the years, with a couple of bands I was in, I would, we'd, we'd make a point that there was, was another time, and we're in this beautiful old faded opulence. Yeah. I, I remember worrying about the building I was in, thinking, this is, how are they going to keep this place going? And then the street, how, and that was, we're talking in the 80s, and now, now in the last 10 yeah. years, you, you've seen exactly what happened. In the 80s, I was there to see... Mitch Ryder, when he was being produced by either John Cougar or Mellencamp. Oh, I sort of remember that, yeah. That, Prince, great record. version of a Prince song, When You Were Mine. Oh, right. And, uh, but anyway, but then I went to the um, Motown Museum. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. Have you? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. see that little Michael Jackson suit. Yeah. You know, there's the glove. No, this is the little... Little building. Yeah, yeah, where they used to make the records. Yeah, yeah well, you, you know. That's good, where they made the records. Yeah, that what used, up the what used to be the garage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Incredible. It's, it's, it's amazing. Those, all those jazzers in that tiny little room making Region those sound. enormous sounding records. So as big as Region Sound. Some yeah. size. So I've just clocked, felt, you know, where we, we did the, it was a demo studio, we did the first Stones things. So. Uh, on Demo Street? Yeah. Yeah. Number four. Now, Bright Lights, Big City, I remember when I was a kid having the, the bootleg of that. What's that the, wasn't there, made there. Right, okay. What's the, what's the deal with that? Was that before the first album? It's yeah. got Diddly Daddy on it. Yeah. What a great... Were you there for that recording, right? No, no, no. That was Glyn Johns at IBC. He knew Ian Stewart. They made a deal with IBC, which was run by a businessman and, and a band leader. <laughs> what changes, you know, um... And the deal, this is pretty advanced, though, to give them credit. They let the Stones record, diddly daddly done on these things, like five or six things. Glenn was an apprentice there, or an, you know, he was working his way up. Yeah. Um, and because he lived with Ian Stewart or something like that. And they make the things, and it's a six-month deal that, okay, if we can do a deal for you, which is pr for, for the end of 1962, is pretty advanced. Yeah, and if what, right? they can sell it. Yeah, but, but pretty, you know, you've got, I've got to respect the band leader who said, all right, Glenn, you can do it. You know, the guy who owned the studio. Right. Right? You know, in that, you know, not, because that's pretty unusual, right? For, right. For, when did I first see them? In April, April of 63. So, yeah, this is like November, uh, the winter of 62, right? But, of course, when I met the Stones... When I met them, of course, they didn't tell me about this. Right, I, I see. What, well, you didn't know about, even about those masters? No. 
right? So we've all fallen in love. And, uh, but that was their first studio session, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. And they didn't oh, no, they did something in Morden too. Right, okay. Then when we're all settled and we've done the, the deal, you know, we're going to take things. Oh, by the way, like, um, there's this little thing. Well, fortunately, only Brian signed it. So I had to rehearse him and send him around there to IBC. Glyn Jones didn't like me for a long time. Okay, I mean, the actual yeah. remark was Andrew Oldham could not produce juice out of an orange. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and you want to be George Martin. But if you live in England, this happens. I rehearsed him. I'm, I'm, it was up the road from the BBC in Portland Place. And I'm going, you are fed up with the Stones. You've got to leave them. And you've got an opportunity. And if it's right, Brian, say the Yardbirds, right? But if not, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, an actor's actually going to have work and be professional, not like that singer you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And he went in with a check from his parents, but it was really from Eric Easton, you know, thing like that, for 90 quid for wow. the tapes, right? Oh, right, okay, yeah. Right? So you were serious, 90 quid. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. But who ended up owning those tapes then? No, because, right, it's, not, it's amazing, though, because the artefact... I mean, I know who would say they do. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> right? do, yeah. Yeah, right. But because uh, those sessions, for, just for anyone listening, those, any, anyone who's, you know, really, really into the, the Stones or even just sort of 60s music, it's quite weird that that whole, that session was never, was kind of written out of their story in a way. And, oh, I think they've appeared. The, the tapes of yeah, oh, no shit, yeah, because yeah. I've got a really yeah. good pressing of it. Right. When I was, you know, I had that when I was in my early 20s, and it's better sounding than the first album. Oh, the second album, it's a really good oh, sound. <laughs> it's a really good sound. Is it? But, well, yeah, hey, listen, Glenn Johns. Technically. technically IBC is a great room. No, but the, ter- the material yeah. is different. The material yeah. is different. Remember, I was going for something, you know, I wanted yeah. Top of the Pups. No, well, the second album, you know, the second album's mine, my thing. Which one was that? The, the, number, was the, it number the, two? The second one, yeah, yeah, with You Can't Catch Me On. Okay, right. And Of Our Heads, okay. my favourite. And always, I mean, you know, the, 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 singles, uh, the singles collection, you know, um, Through the Past Darkly. Right. For, for all kinds of reasons, really. Cultural reasons, but, you know, what great collection of songs. But, but for the longest time, rather than Between the Buttons or um, Aftermath or anything like that, the second album, George for me, and and out of, you did out by heads, right? Yeah, yeah. Amazing sound, absolutely amazing. Hey, big thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Sounds of Vision with the Vision himself, Mr. Parr. Please do go for the show notes to our YouTube audiovisual companion playlist. Our Sounds of Vision is produced, seduced by Craig Snyder. The producer and audio design for Juno Sepa is by Michael Donaldson. And the photography of moi is by the delicious Patina and talented, let's not. We don't want to be Don Rickles' sexist, Bettina LaPlante. You can get more episodes of Sounds and Vision by going to soundsandvision.net. 
the and is not the old squiggly one, it is A-N-D. That's soundsandvision.net or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite podcast feed. You can reach me at Instagram or Twitter by finding Matt Lou Oldham. And to find more of good stuff, please visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or do I get paid for this? Double Elvis FM. I'm joking, of course. On Twitter, Sounds and Vision is a production of Because Entertainment. We'll see you next week. Look after your God, and he will look after you. Double Elvis.